Okay, well today I am so excited. Uh, first of all, welcome to the Faith and Justice Network podcast. Um, I'm Danielle Mayfield, DL Mayfield, and uh, you know every month I get to talk to somebody really cool about their spiritual practices, and this is just a dream gig of mine, <laughs> and especially today because uh, for the month of December, obviously it's Christmas time, it's Advent time, and uh, one of my best friends in the whole world has been working feverishly on a book about Advent, so that's who I'm here to talk to today. It's my friend, Kelly Nick and Deha. Kelly, do you want to say hi? Good morning or hello, whatever time of day it is. I'm so excited to be able to talk with you today. Oh my gosh. Okay. There's so much I want to say about Kelly, but for the listeners, um, Kelly is primarily a writer and a theologian. Um, She kind of specializes in taking some of the more obscure or not obscure, but just, um, you you know, some of these theologians and texts that are a little hard to get into and she makes them accessible Mm -hmm. for a lot of other people, which is why I love her work so much. Her first book was uh, on adoption and then her second book was on um, defiance and the women uh, in the book of Exodus, which y'all, if you want to read a book on Exodus, you got to read Kelly's book, Defy It. It's incredible. And she's been working on a book about Advent. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But excuse me, before we get into that, Kelly, I just want to say, how are you coming in today? How are you doing? Tell tell us as little or as, you know, much as you want to. Uh, Well, where am I today? Today, I'm coming to you physically from Arizona. That's important to say because half of the time I live in Burundi. Um, Today, I'm coming into the space like that person in the circus who has all the plates spinning, some of them more successfully than others. (laughs) So I am going to be traveling in a couple of days to Burundi. And so I'm in that place where I'm packing and preparing the house for my departure and at the same time dealing with, as you said, this Advent book and copy edits and Um, artist permissions and all the final, like lots is happening on that front. And then um, we are partnered with a church in Texas. And this is the week that they're, uh, we're videoing uh, into the services on Sunday to share about the work that we do. And so um, I have meetings with them and scripts that we have in place. And so I feel like I have all these things happening, you know, in the next two or three days. COVID test has to happen in a couple of days. So I'm anxious about that, making sure that, you know, I'm able to, to travel. So just lots of plates spinning today. Yeah. And you live, you do live a life sort of in two different worlds, right? Arizona is very different from Burundi. (laughs) And um, do you want to explain to people a little bit why half of your life is in Burundi? Sure. So I am a California girl, born and raised. And uh, if I had my way, I'd be living in Santa Barbara right now. (laughs) But I married the most amazing man, uh, Claude Nikondeha, Burundian, born and raised. And he um, has a heart for for the people in his country. And so uh, part of our marriage (laughs) is the development work that we do in Burundi. Uh, So we are doing education um, uh, banking, all sorts of different things in Burundi to help make it a more just, equitable place uh, for those who are in extreme poverty. Uh, and so that means that my family lives 
between two places. Um, my, my husband and my kids, uh, I have two 17 year olds, um, see Burundi as their permanent and mm-hmm. you know, kind of their base. I have never been a natural expat. So I'm the one that moves back and forth. So I'm there half of the year and I'm here half of the year. So I'm, get, I'm getting ready to make that transition uh, to spend the next seven months uh, in East Africa with my family. Yeah. So this really is a time of preparation and, you know, your, your theme of living in two worlds, one foot in other worlds has been a theme in your writing for a really long time. And I also see that, um, when it comes to you and faith. And so one of the things I appreciate about you is, uh, you, you bring a sense of ecumenism. How do you say that word? Ecumenicalism. I am not going to say that word right. But um, yeah, do you want to tell us a tiny bit about um, what it means for you to be, I don't know, I don't want to say it for you, but um, sure, sure. So I was, uh, I was uh, born into a, a Catholic family, but very quickly, I mean, you know, in my uh, I'd say I was maybe six or seven when my parents um, left the Catholic church for um, evangelical spaces. Um, and so in a sense, I I kind of got my feet wet in my early days um, in Catholicism. And I, I think of the Catholic church as my mother church. It's where I was baptized, had my first communion, first experienced the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you heard that right. First time I encountered the Holy Spirit was in the Catholic Church. And so all of my firsts seemed to happen in that space. And then we got moved into this evangelical world. And that's where I grew up in terms of Sunday school and youth camps and um, all the rest um, up and up until, you know, my adulthood. Uh, So I'm well versed in evangelical spaces. Um, but in the in the last set of years have have returned home and have returned to my mother church. And so I am now uh, properly back in Catholic spaces for worship and uh, just feels like I'm I'm home. And I think part of what I needed, I, I started to find that evangelical spaces triggered me mm. more than nourished me. And at that point, I felt like I need to be in a place where I am nourished and I can participate in worship and not be triggered all the time and fighting all the time. And so I remember it was an Ash Wednesday where I walked into um, the local Catholic church and it it just felt, I mean, I wept through the whole service mm. because I felt like I had returned uh, so for me, what I what I love is that I can walk into this space. I usually go to midweek mass because it's smaller and more intimate, and I can get right up front. And you know, we say the Lord's prayer together as a congregation. We um, hear scripture read, whole parts of scripture just read out loud um, without commentary. Uh, we take the Eucharist together. And there was something about that, uh, that just, I don't need all the fancy sermons and the bells and the whistles and the, the, you know, the guitars and the drum solos and the smoke machines. And I, I just want to pray out loud with other people. I want Mm. to receive communion from another person. I want 
to, to be in that holy space together. And so it's been very nourishing for me to return to the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like I don't even have to ask you the questions that I normally have to ask people, which is, you know, tell me about your spiritual practices. And I already hear in your voice um, and in your story, right, some of what has drawn you back to the Catholic Church. Um, I think it's really interesting that it was Ash Wednesday, and you have such a clear picture of that because Mm -hmm. uh, rituals and lament, I know, is a really important part of your spiritual practice. Um, and it, and maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, but I, I'm hearing you say like, I didn't find spaces for lament and a liturgy of lament in evangelicalism. Is that kind of what you're saying? Or am I reading too much into that? No. You know enough of my story to know that's absolutely true is I, I found that part of what, at least my experience of evangelical spaces. You know, I want to be very clear. I know that my my experience isn't everybody's, but my experience, and I had been in multiple, I mean, I'd gone to evangelical um, college. I had been in lots of different evangelical churches over the years and um, initiatives, et cetera. My experience was that's where happy, shiny people go. Mm. That's not where you go to to tap into the sadness of things and to find tools to wrestle with what is wrong with the world. Um, You know, what do you do when you see injustice? Uh, What do you, I mean, I, the only thing I was told is you have to fix it. Well, there's, Uh there's things that have to happen before you fix anything. And that is to name it, to feel it, to uh, kind of be in solidarity. I mean, Frederick Buechner has this phrase that I've long loved where he talks about, um, uh, I think the book is called Telling the Truth. And he talks about um, having to kind of make friends with our sadness. Mm. Um, I'm losing the exact phrase right now. He was much more articulate than that. But he he was the first person that gave language to this idea that that there is something about the sadness that we actually need to engage and partner with. And, you know, that started to kind of, open me up to realize, no, 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 there's something to learn here. There's, there's, I need to accompany or be in solidarity with this sadness um, before I can move forward. And there were just no spaces in evangelicalism for me that I found that allowed me to do that. They, they were always telling me, be happy. You know, God's going to take care of it. God is sovereign. And, you know, that just isn't the whole story of scripture, actually, you know, yeah, and this is what I love about you. You love scripture. Yeah. Um, you you talk about Isaiah more than any person I've met in my entire <laughs> life. And I've met a lot of people who are who are into the Bible. Yes. <laughs> but um I love listening to you talk about the book of Isaiah. Of course, now I'm like, I love listening to you talk about Exodus. Um, but now I'm very excited to hear you talk about um the story of the birth of Jesus, because that is what you've been mostly immersed in, in with this book that's coming out next year. Now, the same thing I hear you saying about evangelical spaces is what I heard you processing as you worked on this book about Advent, which is the narratives I hear about Advent are not reaching me in the questions I have. And one question I heard you say over and over again is, you know, I think in like popular culture Christianity, and maybe it is specific to white evangelicalism, right? There's this idea that Jesus is born, yay, like 
the work is done. And you were like, but the world still sucks. Like mm-hmm. um, Jesus was born. That's great. Um, he was killed by the state when he was 33. So what does that mean for this like triumphant narrative we have about, yay, Jesus was born. Everything's fixed. And you're like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. You live in Burundi and you live in Arizona in one of the reddest counties. Is that correct? It's correct. Um, Maricopa County. So you have sort of an interesting perspective on what does it mean to celebrate God with us when God being with us doesn't actually fix like any of the problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk about that a little <laughs> bit. I know, I know it's been hard for you. And here's something I, I'm like, if you want to talk about this, go for it. You had mentioned to me, you're like, I know I need to start doing some marketing for my Advent book, but I just, <laughs> I don't have the energy to go on Instagram and be like, here's what the first Sunday of Advent means to me. And it's like, you're almost too deep in the thick of it. You can't condense it down to one Instagram post. And it's not super happy what you have to say, right? Is that what your editor told you? <laughs> <laughs> well, my editor told me I'm very intense. <laughs> Which that's is why course, I love you. That's why I love you. I know. We, that's one of the places you and I have some mm-hmm. commonality. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, I mean, this kind of goes to where even kind of the origin story of this this book um, on Advent is that a handful of years ago, I started, I mean, I've always loved Advent growing up in the church. Um, in evangelical spaces, the churches I was in, it was really just my mom setting up a Advent wreath with the candle, four candles, um, because Advent is four weeks preparing for the arrival of Jesus. And, you know, the Advent calendars, which now have become quite ubiquitous and commercial, it wasn't that way growing up. It was much more of a church thing. Now you walk into Trader Joe's and there's, you know, <laughs> you know, Advent calendars with chocolates, et cetera. But um, I grew up with a really happy, shiny idea that Advent was all about hope and joy. Matter of fact, the words that we associate with it for the four weeks are what? Love, joy, hope, and peace. Uh, I think Sarah Bessie has her has a spin that she takes from, I think it's the Carmelites, where the, the word set, what does she talk about? Um, waiting, accepting, journeying, and birthing, right? Mm. Um, which I think are really beautiful words to explore. But I started a couple years, well, several years ago to feel really dark mm. when I would come into Advent. Like it, I would start to hone in on the things that were amiss, the things that weren't working. I remember, I mean, the first time I really sensed it was, um, it was the year where there was a lot in the news about the global migration prop, refugee problem. Where we there were all the where we were seeing lots of pictures and images of refugees trying to get into Europe for safety for survival, and I just couldn't get those images and the injustices connected to that out of. I mean, that's where I was for Advent was this dark place of knowing that people were unsafe, people were in jeopardy. How could I be singing and celebrating, you know, peace and joy up against this? Um, another year I really was, I had been reading some articles about uh, maternal mortality in the U S in particular Mm -hmm. women of color, the stats for women of color 
and matern maternal mortality were terrible. Mm -hmm. The risk for women of color giving birth in our own country. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get away from that deep sadness. Um, and so I started to call it my advent ache that while other people were pulling out their red Starbucks cups and their holiday drinks or, you know, decking the, the church halls with greens and twinkle lights, I was actually feeling the opposite, uh, the deep darkness uh, of things. So I, I have lived with this advent ache and I think for a long time I felt quite alone in it. Um, like I was an anomaly, I was out of sync with the rest of the church. And so that's really the origin story for why I wanted to lean in more deeply to the advent narratives that Matthew and Luke give us um, to, to try and wrestle with the text itself and the stories and the traditions that we had been given. So. Yeah. And I, I think like, you know, I don't want to give away everything about no. what you've been working on, but just a few notes on what you just processed is that one of your spiritual practices that I see is that you take um, the reality of the world, like what's making the headlines, uh, what's in the news, and then that influences the way you approach scripture. And it you know, it influences the way you approach even like these seasons, these liturgical seasons and these holidays. So what is confusing about Advent, right, is become so enmeshed with consumeristic, you know, yeah. Christmas culture. Yes. And uh, so there's there's a lot to unpack if you are somebody who's religious, who lives in a westernized society. And as Advent is gaming, you know, gaining a little bit more popularity. And I love this idea that your your mom, who was Catholic, brought the advent wreath right into yes. the evangelical churches, right. That you yes. guys started going. And I think that's honestly happening a lot. I think a lot of, you know, some of these more quote unquote, non-denominational churches want to understand liturgy and how it impacts us and the rhythms of that. And you're saying like, that's great, but uh, we can't just do the four candles with hope peace, joy, and you know, like that, that is certainly not it. One of the things I love most about you is with this book, you just went deep into the place that Jesus was born into. Um, and I think one of your spiritual practices as I've seen it as your, as your friend has become, uh, you are very interested in like the realities of lived experiences and lived bodies. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your relationship with Palestine? <laughs> and and <laughs> let's just go easy. Sure. <laughs> so um, I have been, I grew up, of course, in evangelicalism. Everybody wanted to go to the Holy Land. I never did. So this was not something I always wanted. Um, but uh, once I was out of college, I think uh, I read a book by Thomas Friedman, uh, From Beirut to Jerusalem, because the in, what I now know is that the Intifada, the first Intifada, which is an uprising of Palestinians against the Israeli occupation, as they would say it, um, was happening. And so there was a lot in the news about the Middle East, and I was curious what was going on. So I read this book by Thomas Friedman thinking I'd read one book and be done. I'd understand the Middle East. Well, of course, Pandora's box, because I read that book and realized, oh my gosh, there are 
there are people other than the Israeli Jews living there. Like I really had never heard or knew about Palestinian people before I read that book. So I was in my late twenties, maybe before I realized that there were Palestinian people living in this land alongside Jewish people and that their roots in the land were as deep and that there were even Christian Palestinians blew my mind. And I think once I saw them, I couldn't unsee them. Mm -hmm. And there was this sense of, I I, I felt this need to be in solidarity with them, to listen, to learn, um, to not be blind to their their presence ever again. And so for the last 30, you know, what, 28, 30 years, I've been reading every year, one, one, two, 10, 12 books by um, various people out of the region, whether it be about politics or social issues or faith issues, peace and justice from uh, Jewish, Palestinian, Muslim, from all the different perspectives, because I just wanted to learn. Um, and that finally grew into me traveling there. So I've been to Israel, Palestine um, three times, three, yeah, three years in a row, um, made, made some really wonderful friends there and deeply love Palestine in particular. If I could, the plan was originally for me to live in Bethlehem for three months while I wrote this book, to be in Bethlehem for Advent and write from that place was the original idea of this book before COVID hit um, and changed that reality. And the little inn that I was going to stay in has been closed for the for all of COVID, um, which is another deep sadness. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, so I have a deep connection to to Israel, Palestine and the and the people there. Um, and that is part of the texture of this book, uh, which is called the first advent in Palestine. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the people, the place, the politics of Palestine seriously, both then at the time of the first advent and now in in our more current situation um, and making the connection between what, what was and what still is. And I think that just makes these advent stories so current not just to Israel, Palestine, but to us. The more I understand the world of Herod and Caesar and taxation, the more it sounds like what we see in our, you know, come across our Twitter feed every day. Yeah. And that's why I just love your work because yeah, you've spent 20 years following this desire of yours to understand Palestine and to understand the context. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, (laughs) A long time. And it's, you know, pretty recent that you were able to travel there and you want to continue that mm-hmm. uh, connection to it in your future. But I, it's so fascinating. You know, you mentioned people, you know, from evangelicalism, like wanting to go visit the Holy Land and how that is really the opposite of what you're doing, right? They mm-hmm. want to, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm yeah. reading too much into that, but I've been invited to go on an all expenses paid trip to Israel, yes. to the Holy Land um, by people with really intense political aspirations. And so I I just think what you're doing is the opposite of that. And not just because you've been reading books about it and studying it and visiting for 30 years. I love seeing all the creative ways. Like, um, what, do you want to talk about some of the spiritual practices of poetry and cooking you have, (laughs) uh, become engaged with in the last few years in, you know, around, uh, Palestine? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll start, 
Um, when it comes to poetry, I, I think some of it started, to be honest, after the, the results of the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. um, I started reading poetry every morning and writing postcards to my senators every morning um, on behalf of issues that impacted my local neighbors. Um, it was my way of trying to embody that loving my neighbors in practical ways by advocating for the issues that affected their, their lives here in my state. Um, so that, but that began the, the habit of reading poetry every morning to try and connect with something beautiful and true up against all that I was hearing every day that was often not true and crass and mm. disturbing. Uh, so poetry uh, became a lifeline for me, a practice, um, but also writing, you know, the postcards was a way that come up with two or three sentences that you're going to, that you want to put in front of your senators every day on behalf of your neighbors um, became my way of, of trying to embody solidarity um, here in my own little state when I was in Arizona. And when I was in Burundi, I would, um, I would use the online forums. So my senators are very familiar. <laughs> their, staff, their, their staff knew me by name because it was literally every day. Um, but that began that habit of, of seeing poetry as more than just um, a literary accessory. And instead it, it became a mainstay for me in a practice. Uh, but of course it wasn't long before I discovered some amazing Palestinian poetry, uh, poets. Um, the two that I, uh, read the most happen to both be men, um, one that is now deceased and one that is young and alive and um, just had a new volume come out last year. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, poetry is a wonderful way to also connect to the texture um, of a place. Mm. And so um, as I've been working on this Advent book, of course, I've been reading the Advent narratives in Matthew and Luke. Um, daily, <laughs> pretty much, uh, for the last couple of years. But I also have focused on Palestinian poetry. So then I'm there again, the things that the things that that shape a Palestinian imagination, the 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 beauty that they see, the challenge they feel, the things they wrestle with are the, you know, poetry keeps that front and center for me as I write. Um, and since I couldn't go to Palestine much you know, as I said, it was a deep sadness. Um, I love to cook. And so one of the, I was going to stay at this little place called uh, Hosh Al-Syrian. Um, and the, the owner of the inn is the, also the chef. Um, and so Chef Fadi and I had become friends while I was there, the, my last two stays. And uh, so he and I text all through the, all through the, um, the pandemic, he and I text each other back and forth. And so he kind of mentored me where, you know, he would put up a picture of something he did with pomegranate molasses. And I'd be like, teach me what, do, what should I try? And he would give me, here's a recipe to try with pomegranate molasses. And then, okay, here's another one. And so he would share family recipes and I would try them here. Um, I would just try, I mean, so now that's what I cook most of the time when I cook. It's, uh, Middle Eastern food. I become very comfortable with uh, pomegranate seeds and pomegranate molasses and date syrup and za'atar and sumac. And I make lebne every week. And I, um, 
uh, have become very comfortable using tahini and making falafel and all the salads. And um, yeah, so it, again, it's another way to to taste, to have my senses kind of filled with the, the color and the flavors and the aromas of the region, um, the stories of my friends. I have some other good Palestinian friends and one of them taught me her family recipe on how to make makluba, which is the traditional dish there. And when I made it and sent her a picture, she's like, oh my gosh, it looks just like the one my mom makes, you know, mm -hmm. just like the one actually her sister made me when we were there together the year prior and I got to eat with her in Palestine. So food has become another way to, 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 to keep the Palestinian people close. Mm. And, um, and often, especially there's one thing I do in particular, you know, you, if I'm using canned chickpeas, which let's be honest, sometimes we, we don't soak them overnight. So if I'm using canned chickpeas, I'm one of those people who takes the skins off. Not oh everybody gosh. does, but it drives oh me nuts. Gosh. But it's become this thing that when I sit there and take, and take the skins off, it becomes, it's almost like doing the rosary, the rosary beads in my hand. And I pray for my Palestinian friends by name as I do that. And so no matter any time that I have to pull out the can of chickpeas and skin them, it becomes this time of just automatically praying for my friends. So, I mean, for me, prayer is always very uh, practical, very um, tactile. So, I mean, these are the things... I don't know. You may call them practices, but it's just the way that I pray. <laughs> oh my gosh. I never, I never knew you did that with chickpeas, which is funny because one time yeah. I soaked the chickpeas, I took off the skins, it yes. took forever. And I was so mad because <laughs> it tasted so good. Right. It tastes way better when it you makes take a those difference. freaking skins off, but it is just a numbing work, but I love how you see, this is what I love about you. You live in your mind a lot and you are very, um, academic focused. Yeah. Actually, you're very, you only read the top scholars, you know what I mean? You're just thinking, and then you have also figured out how to engage the rest of your body in spiritual mm -hmm. practices, which is just one of the things I love so much about you. So I, I see you doing this, um, you know, with food and touch and, yeah. and prayer. I just think it's really beautiful. And still these, these, there's these themes that come from the very beginning of your life that you are always um, thinking about. And that is sort of this biculturalness. And I think even as Christians, a lot of us have some work to do to say, how does our faith look anything like the, the context Jesus was born into. Are we, you know, like there's so many issues of um, how can we learn more without appropriating culture? How can we celebrate culture without right. making ourselves the center of the story? And I see a lot of your skill in doing this work coming from the fact that, you know, you, you come from some different ethnic backgrounds and yet you can move pretty easily in uh, a white supremacist society. I don't know. Do you see any of those connections? Did you want to talk a little bit about your heritage or not really? Well, I mean, I'm uh, adopted. So that's why my first book, <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise, had a fair amount of biographical uh, connection on being adopted. But I, my birth mother uh, was a Mexican and I was adopted into a white family. And so I was raised in whiteness um, 
And I mean, my parents, this is just their world. They gave me what they had. They gave me the best of what they had. Uh, what they had was the best of whiteness. They were very successful at it. They were upper middle class, um, living in Orange County, California. Um, I had the best of what whiteness had to offer. And so in a sense, that is what shaped me in my in my formative years. And it wasn't until I, oh, maybe maybe in my late 30s, early 40s, maybe early 40s, that I started to take more seriously what it meant that I was actually Mexican too. Like I never didn't know it. I always knew I was, but it was just never something I really grappled with. I mean, uh, in adoption circles, we would talk about nature versus nurture. And of course, my mother always said, nature doesn't matter. It's how you're nurtured, which is exactly what you would expect a good adoptive parent to say. <laughs> it's not at all what I say to my own children who I'm adopted. <laughs> um, but because I, I think I've learned later in life that at some point, uh, actually, nature is also important and it's going to come for you <laughs> when you least expect it. Um, and so I kind of had this personal renaissance where I, I was reading a book, uh, not surprisingly, uh, Liberation Theology by Ada Anasazi Diaz. So she is a uh, female, a mujerista, we call a mujerista theologian, um, a Latin American womanist uh, theologian or feminist liberation theologian. That's a lot of jargon there. But mm -hmm. I was reading her book and in I was weeping because there was there was a texture to her language and to the way that she talked about faith that felt really resonant with me. And in the end where she started to talk about the practices of Latina women, it was all the things that I had started doing, um, praying with candles and um, uh, there, there was more than that, but I, there was like all these things that I thought were just unique to me, you know, returning to the rosary and putting up little, little vigils and, you know, with Mary and pictures of people I love, like things I just started to do. It's like, oh my gosh, that's what Latina women do. And I started to realize it's because that is part of my nature. Mm -hmm. It's part of me. And so I started to really own that and celebrate that that is a part of who I am. So yes, now I'm, I feel like I'm still in that place of owning that. Yes, I was raised white. I can't deny it. Um, but I also am. Latina too. And what does that mean? Um, and so, yeah. And then of course my husband is, is born and raised uh, Burundian. And so the texture of our, our marriage is bicultural. Um, our children uh, that we adopted are both Burundian, but of course they are bicultural <laughs> with me as their mama and, and then their Burundian papa. So, I mean, I think everything in our life has this duality to it. It's, recognizing that we're not one or the other, that we're often both. And the beauty of being able to say, I don't have to choose in the binary. I don't have to choose nature or nurture. I don't have to choose which passport country matters to me. In our family, we just say both. You know, I have two mothers, a birth mother and adopted mother. So do my kids. They don't have to love me more than her. You know, they get us both. And I think that has kind of shaped the way that my husband and I have seen life is that oftentimes for us, it's embracing or uh, Richard Rohr would say, you know, everything belongs. 
Mm. We don't have to cast off any of it or, or, or play into the binary. All of it can be part of who we are and can be profitable um, for discovering our full humanity. So, I mean, that is just kind of something about who we are and how my family has had to live their life. <laughs> And and I love it because I just see it, it obviously in your spiritual practices, but in your writing and in you how and how you um, sort of interpret some of the main scholars and theologians of our day through your own lens, and then say I'm going to, you know, put this out for more like the everyday person like me. And I will say it's very special to be the recipient of some of your prayers because I know you light candles for me sometimes. And it's just so beautiful to be a recipient of your um, hard-earned spiritual practices, Kelly. And Mm -hmm. I just want to affirm, I just just love seeing you. And, And I think a lot of people also relate to some of us are coming to some realizations a little later in life, right? About what is our history. My mom was raised Catholic and I, you know, working on a book about Dorothy Day. And it's been really interesting to be like, I didn't spring up out of nowhere into white evangelicalism, right? There's history and there's things to reclaim and there's things I do not want to reclaim about the Catholic tradition. And so I think this is going to be really important for a lot of us you know, post 2016, for a lot of us, that was an earth shattering event, not for everybody. Yes. But, uh, you know, this, and I just think you're one of these people who just does it in such a beautiful way through poetry, through cooking, through study, through writing letters to your senators, you know, <laughs> I just, I just love to see how you're reclaiming some of these mm. things for yourself. Thank you. And uh, I bet people listening are going to want to know some of the names of these poets you've been talking about. <laughs> um, so I think I'll probably send you a little email if you can just okay. list some of some of your um, some of the people that move you. But one of the things I love most about your books, Kelly, are your footnotes. And I know you get that a lot. I know I love you get that footnotes. a lot. I love yes, footnotes. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So I'm going to just put out a plug. Everybody, please pick up both of Kelly's books. Um, what's the full title of Adopted? Can you tell me? Uh, Adopted, The Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. Okay, beautiful. And then the, the full title of Defiant. Can you tell me that full title yeah, as well? So Defiant what the women of Exodus teach us about freedom. And that book is sort of, uh, you're looking at basically 12 women, not all of who are named in the book of Exodus. And it's just, I mean, create the conditions for liberation. There would be no Moses if those women didn't do their liberative work first and alongside him. Yeah, I will never forget the names Shipra and Pua, the midwives in the book of Exodus because of you and in the work you did to to introduce me to them. And then, yeah, so right now, basically, uh, for next year, you know, you will have an Advent book coming out. Can you tell us the full title of that? Sure. Uh, The first Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. Oh my gosh. And you know, <laughs> you, you and I will be doing a, a big lot o- of words, I, it, but they're all, they're all amazing words. And, and you and I will be doing a big old Advent book club on that book next year. Yes, so everybody keep that in the back of your mind. And you just, you know, maybe we could just do a sneak sure. preview or something, but you just got basically approved 
this beautiful cover artwork by a Palestinian artist. And that's another one of your spiritual practices is you go all in on Palestinian <laughs> artists and you follow their work and you yeah. champion them. And yeah. my so Instagram, you- my Instagram feed is like, I'd say 60% Palestinian chefs, Palestinian artists, Palestinian activists. <laughs> and that's a spiritual practice. Well, it honestly. is because, because part of what it does is put different, our Palestinian brothers and sisters are putting different stories in, in a sense, I have different things in front of me. Um, and that was all, if I couldn't be in Palestine to write the book, there were other ways that I had to immerse myself. And that mm-hmm. was what I, I'm on, I'm on Instagram all day. So if 60% of what I see is coming out of the region, then what I'm seeing are the stories and the concerns and the beautiful goods that they're creating and the, and the, uh, dances that they're sharing and the music, you know, the music there. Like I see all of that helping shape uh, my my daily uh, social media diet. So yeah, <laughs> but yes, oh uh, Sliman Mansour is kind of the preeminent uh, Palestinian artist. He has been since the seventies, um, and he's known as the artist of resistance. And so he gave us permission to use one of his iconic um, images for the cover mm. of the book. And I just, that I found out on Thanksgiving uh, that he had, that he said yes. And it was just such a great gift. It came, it came as a gift. Yeah. So I hope that the whole thing, you know, the book itself will, of course, it's about Advent and the stories uh, of Luke and Matthew, uh, but it also is about the Palestinian people and where they fit into that story. And I hope that when people get the book, you know, they'll see the artwork, they'll feel, they'll feel Palestine when they read it, I hope. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure people, even just thinking about uh, this month for all of us, the month of Advent, like, Mm -hmm. I think for myself, I know that I would love to read some poems and immerse myself in some of of this artwork just Mm -hmm. to help center us because there's a lot going on with Advent in the popular culture and in Christianity in particular. And it, it's okay if it doesn't resonate with you. I think that's what you're saying. Right. And I was, well, I was thinking, you know, the four words we talked about, joy, hope, love, peace. And actually when I wrote this book, I I played around with what I found were kind of four alternative words, right. From, from their vernacular. Right. And, and for me, the words were Nakba, which is about catastrophe, which is a mm-hmm, huge part of Advent. Mm-hmm. Uh, intifada, which is about uprising or resisting um, those imperial forces. Um, Samud, which is about steadfastness or perseverance, or I'm going to say that sustaining work of hope, Samud. Um, and um, the last one would be Sibyl, which is the, kind of the way or the path forward. Um, which Naim Atik, who is a Palestinian liberation theologian, talks about, um, Sabil, that the way forward is the way to peace, you know? Mm. And to me, those are the words that I think, you know, I think of these words that are much more, I mean, to me, they, they're not just Palestinian words. They're, they, they carry a gravitas that I think matches the first advent. Yeah. Oh, Kelly, that's so beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. And um, I'll be praying for some traveling mercies for you. And yeah, thank you so much. 